This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 271st episode, we have a brand new Spinosaurid in the news. Ooh. I think it's pretty exciting. We also have an interview with Matt Wadel and Brian Eng about an awesome new massive Brachiosaurus bone that they found in Utah and also some corresponding paleo art. And we have our dinosaur of the day, Juravenator. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons who keep our podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, Greg, and Jared Copeland. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. This community is great. And if you want to join it, then we have a lively Discord server going and other rewards that you can be a part of if you join at patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping into the news, I think we've covered every dinosaur that was found in 2019 now, but let us know if you found one that we missed because there's no one place where they're all listed. The next closest thing is probably Wikipedia or maybe our show, but <laughs> yeah. So if we miss something, let us know because we want to cover every dinosaur that comes out. But on to 2020, we have a new Spinosaurid that was discovered, and this one was published in Cretaceous Research by Elizabeth Malafaya, I think, and others. And it is the most complete Spinosaurid ever found on the Iberian Peninsula, which for our purposes basically means Spain and Portugal, because those are the only parts of the Iberian Peninsula that have major dinosaur discoveries. But this one is named... Valle Bonaventrix Cani, or Cani, and Valle Bonaventrix is after the nearby town of Valle Bona, and then Venetrix, which is Latin for huntress, they say. On the Discord server, we were just talking about female-named dinosaurs, so this one would definitely count. Oh yeah, because Venator is hunter. Yep. <laughs> the X part makes it feminine. And that's good, too, because Vallibona, obviously ending in an A in Spanish, must be a feminine-named town, at least because these languages have genders, not like English. And then Canai is after Juan Cano Forner, I think, who found the fossils in the 1980s or early 90s. And specifically, he found them near Morea, Spain, which is on the east coast of Spain. A team actually went back there in 2018 to try to find some more remains, but they only found a, quote, small number of vertebrate remains of low taxonomic interest, end quote. 
So nothing exciting, I guess. Definitely no dinosaurs. Those are of high taxonomic interest. Hmm. <laughs> Depends who you ask. Yes, but I think so. So Juan, back in the 1980s or 90s, they didn't say specifically when this one was found, found several ribs, several partial hip bones, and most importantly, quite a few vertebrae, including a neural spine from Vi Bonaventrix. That name is not easy to say. Part of its distinguishing feature set is that the neural spines are, quote, moderate height, end quote, <laughs> when compared with the height of the centrum, which is the disc part of the vertebrae. So it kind of makes sense that you want that ratio of how tall the spine is compared to the size of the vertebrae. This means that it probably didn't have a massive sail, and the one neural spine that they have really, to me, looks a little bit more like a stegosaurus plate than it does what you'd think of with a spinosaurus spine because it's not tall and skinny. It's almost like as wide as it is tall. Apparently, though, it's only a small piece of what the entire total spine would have been. And so really in life, it was likely much taller, but we don't know how much taller because it's broken off. So who knows? Maybe it had a really big sail or maybe it was just a little bit above where it broke off. As it is, it was about very roughly 17 centimeters or about half a foot tall. And the base of it is almost, like I said, as wide as it is tall. It's a medium-sized spinosaurid, as they put it. And they didn't give any size estimates, probably because they're missing key bones. They don't have a femur. They don't have a skull, any of the really important bones that can sometimes help you figure out the size of an animal. But they do have a complete sacrum, which is those series of vertebrae that go in between the hips. And when you add those up, it's roughly 60 centimeters or about two feet long. So it kind of gives you a rough idea of how big the animal is. If it's just two feet for the hip part, you're talking about a pretty big dinosaur. Not as big as Spinosaurus, but on the larger size of dinosaurs, I would say. Maybe 20 feet long, 30 feet long, somewhere in that ballpark. Medium-sized yeah. for a spinosaurid. Exactly. Vi Bonaventrix is from the early Cretaceous, roughly 125 million years ago. And because spinosaurids can be split into Spinosaurinae and Baryonychinae, we had to figure out where this one's fit. And they decided that Vi Bonaventrix is a Spinosaurinae member, not a Baryonychinae member, which means it's a closer relative to Spinosaurus than Baryonyx, which might mean something good for its sail proportions because Spinosaurus obviously has a much bigger sail than Baryonyx. And it's especially interesting because Baryonyx was actually in Europe at the same time as Vi Bonaventrix, while Spinosaurus was quite a bit later, like 10 million years later, and it was in Africa, which means that potentially this dinosaur was more closely related to the African dinosaurs than it was to European dinosaurs, even though they might have been closer in time. It's previously been proposed that at the time, it was relatively easy to get between North Africa and Europe, at least in the early Cretaceous. So maybe Spinosaurids were moving back and forth between the two, and that's how we ended up with this Vi Bonaventrix Moroccan-like Spinosaur, but in Spain. But unfortunately, it's pretty fragmentary. You know, there's no skull. We're missing a lot of the other key bones, so we don't know exactly where it is in the family tree. We can just say that it's semi-closely related to Spinosaurus. 
And if you want to see Vai Bonaventrix, Juan Cano Forner Paleontological Museum. Oh, he's got a museum and a dinosaur. Yeah, so he found it. I guess he was an amateur paleontologist out there searching for bones, and then eventually he got his own museum. So it's pretty cool. It is cool. There's very little information online about that museum, though, so I have no idea if they even have a public display. Speaking of public displays, though, uh, in Savannah, Georgia, Dave Trexler and team from Two Medicine Dinosaur Center are working on building a 135-foot-long Amphicelius fragilimus dinosaur for the Plant Riverside District Entertainment Complex. It's going to go in the hall and lobby of the original 1912 Georgia Power Plan building. So it will be the only replica of Amphicelius. And the dinosaur is being made of 230 bones dipped in chrome. It will be animatronic and able to move its neck 12 feet up and down, which is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) The reason it's the only replica, potentially, is it was named in 1878 based on a vertebra that was almost five feet tall and that was shipped on a freight train to Philadelphia and described and sketched by Edward Cope. So it's a Bone Wars dinosaur. And then when he died, that vertebra was supposedly sent with the rest of his collection to the American Museum of Natural History and cataloged as FR5777. But that vertebra is now missing. Mm -hmm. And more than 20 years later after it was shipped there, Henry Osborne and Charles Took were analyzing Cope's collection and they couldn't find it. There's a lot of debate over whether this is a valid genus. Some think that it's a Diplodocus. And in 2018, Kenneth Carpenter, who spent many years studying Amphicelius, classified it as a new genus, Marapunisaurus, and reclassified it from Diplodocae. Diplodocae. Diplodocidae. And reclassified it from Diplodocidae to Rabacosauridae, and based the description of this dinosaur on Lemisaurus instead of Diplodocus and estimated that it was actually not about 130 feet long. It was 102 feet or 31 meters long. Actually, instead of over 200 feet or 60 meters long, because originally it was thought to be this huge dinosaur. I mean, it's still big, but not as big. Because it was a really big vertebra. Yes. But again, there's a lot of debate over this. So Plant Riverside District will have a naming contest for their Amphicelius, and then there will be a grand opening sometime in March or April. Yeah, as soon as you started talking about Amphicelius fragilimus, I was like, didn't I rename that? And then, yeah, Marapunisaurus is the potential new name. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a while for that to catch on, though. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Matt and Brian. We're joined this week by Matt Wadel, who's a vertebrate paleontologist studying especially sauropod dinosaurs. You might remember him when we talked to him back in episode 161 about some sauropods. And he also studies the evolution of pneumatic bones in dinosaurs and birds. And he is an associate professor of anatomy at Western University in Health Sciences. He also co-founded the website Sauropod Vertebra Picture of the Week, also known as SV POW, that you might be familiar with. And we're also joined by Brian Eng, who's a paleo artist. He's illustrated many of the recent dinosaur finds, including Aquilops, Dynamoterror, and Invictarx, just to name a few. He also makes puppets, movies, and music. You can follow him on Patreon at Historian himself or on Twitter, YouTube, or his website. And we also interviewed him back in episode 235 about some of his other stuff. Hello, hello. <laughs> Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. So if you're wondering why we have Brian and Matt on at the same time, it's because they both recently found a new dinosaur bone together and it's been hitting the presses. We actually had some people on Discord asking us about this and I got to say, well, we're going to talk to them really soon. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) The buzz is going. Good, good. That's good to hear. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit about this latest discovery? Why don't you go ahead, Matt? Uh, I'll lay a little bit of the background, and then I'll let Brian take over when we get to the uh, to the big find itself. For the past few years, uh, since 2015, we've been working in the Saltwash member of the Morrison Formation in Utah. Lots of people know the Morrison. It's a big Lake Jurassic formation that has lots of famous dinosaurs like Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, Patasaurus, Camarasaurus. Almost all of those are best known from big quarries in the upper part of the Morrison called the Brushy Basin. And we've been working down in the lower part of the Morrison because we want to understand how that ecosystem sort of got assembled. So we've been down in the salt wash several million years earlier. There have not been a huge number of dinosaur sites, dinosaur quarries from the salt wash. So we've been out there hunting and we've been finding some things. We hadn't made a big splash about our finds until um, we found something pretty special when we were out there last May. So yeah, we've been we've been going back multiple years in a row and just kind of seeing all of what we can find because we've been finding a diversity of things, but it's in this really 
intensely hard sandstone from these ancient river channels. And as we've been exploring these sites, we've been getting really excited about the stuff that we've been finding, but it's a lot of it is it would be extremely difficult to excavate because the stone it is in is crazy hard hmm. and it's in really remote areas. So basically we've been kind of going back, documenting our finds, filming a lot with the plan of putting out a documentary series, which we just uploaded the first part of to YouTube called Jurassic Reimagined, with kind of the goal of creating an awareness uh, or sort of bringing attention back to the Morrison Formation because it's actually really poorly understood. And there's still a lot of confusion and debate about how, like where these animals came from, what the environment was like, how they evolved, what the diversity was in different times and places of the Morrison. So we've been going to this area and cataloging this unique ecology in the saltwash member. And then on a really short trip this year in May, which almost didn't happen. Like, like the only three of us were able to get out there. It was me, Matt Wadle, and Tut Tran. Shout out to Tut. All of our lives conspired to make this trip almost not happen. It got, kept getting trimmed down. We didn't have enough time and funding. The weather was bad. And then on the last day of this trip, it only ended up being three days. We were going down this craggy wash and I doubled back to tell Matt about like some little fleck of bone I found in, in, a, in one of these sandstone walls. And then I just stopped dead in my tracks because I saw something and then I didn't believe the thing I saw. Matt at the time was looking at a lump of stuff in a gravel layer that we're pretty sure is a coprolite. It looks like a turd made out of rock. And he was checking that out <laughs> when he hears me like, dude, you got to come down here and see this. So then I, I kind of like, I took a step back because what I was seeing was really soft, powdery paleosol, so ancient fossil soil with a huge crumbling limb bone, just kind of like crumbling out of it. And the outline was mostly obscured by the erosion and the fact that the edges of this thing were breaking up as they were weathering out, such that it looked like it was like camouflaged. It, it, it's like that feeling of seeing a camouflaged animal that's really exquisitely camouflaged and your your eye and brain kind of complete the outline and you're like no there's no way that you know frog mouth or that gecko could like blend in that well and still but then you see the outline it was that kind of a sensation but it was this huge bone that was bigger than me and so i moved around and kind of posted up on a on a one of these sandstone rock ledges nearby and was like hey matt continue up from where you are up this rise and tell me what you see. And so I captured this moment on film where Matt is going through this gulch and he's like, is this what you found? And I'm like, is what, what I found? And he picks up a chunk of bone off the ground. That's like two phone books stuck together, but of <laughs> solid cortical bone. So the hard bone on the edge of a limb bone. And I'm like, no, I didn't see that dude. As he's standing there holding this lump of bone, he's like, all right, well, I'll just put this back down. Where was it? And he walks up this ridge. And then you, you'll see his reaction in part two of Jurassic Reimagine. But we captured a, an extremely genuine reaction to a paleontologist who's been studying sauropod dinosaurs for, what, close to 20 years now, Matt? Yeah, it's about right. We captured his reaction to by far the largest bone that any of us had ever seen in the field, including our collaborator, Dr. John Foster, who's been working in the Morrison for 28 years. 
And within basically five seconds of seeing this thing, Matt had a couple of ideas of what it might be. So most of the bones that we find out there, we find in this hard sandstone, like Brian mentioned, and usually they're really, they're stained very dark colors because of the minerals that have leached into them from the water moving through the rock. So a lot of times the bones we're looking at are purple or red or blue, and they show up really well against this white sandstone. And so you can see them sometimes from a long ways away. There's a sauropod femur that we found a few years ago that I spotted while having lunch under a tree that was probably, I don't know, 50 meters away from where we were. It was just like a dark line in the rock. Hmm. But this thing, where it had weathered out, the soil was kind of like pale uh, brownish gray and the bone was almost the same color. So Brian, I don't know, you must have almost, how close did you get before you saw it? My right foot was six inches away from it. <laughs> I was, yeah, I, if I had, if, if my pace had been a little different, I would have crunched into it. I would have crunched into the proximal end of this thing. Yeah. So I walked up and I saw, as Brian said, I found this other chunk of bone <laughs> along the way. Um, that's kind of how things go sometimes out there. You hit these rich areas. But I walked up the hill, and there's this thing, and the proximal end that was sticking out, when we got it uncovered and measured it, it was about two feet wide. I don't think the full two feet of width was showing, but probably like a foot and a half. Wow. And we could see the grain of the bone going in. I don't remember if we could see the distal end right away, but it was clearly, clearly not a vertebra, clearly a limb bone, and clearly something really large. And... Just based on the size, the only things that could have been were a humerus or a femur. And just on the size, because the femora are usually bigger than the humeri, the the thigh bones are bigger than the upper arm bones. I said, oh, wow, I think it's got to be a femur. (laughs) And then I kind of checked myself and looked at the outline because I've been obsessed with brachiosaurs since about 1997 when I started working on what would become Sora Poseidon. And when we described Sora Poseidon in 2000, we thought it was a brachiosaur. Now it turns out it's probably more closely related to titanosaurs. But I spent a lot, a lot of time looking at brachiosaurs, and their, uh, their upper arm bones have an extremely distinctive rounded profile that nothing else looks like. And this had that profile, and I, I didn't even want to say it. I didn't want to hope that that was true. I was like, oh, or maybe it could be a humerus or something like brachiosaurus. And then... Tut and Brian and I got our tools and sat down and started kind of clearing off around this thing, found the distal end and uncovered that, measured it. It was a little over two meters. So at that point, it was like, well, this is either a femur of like a really big apatosaur or if it's a humerus, it has to be brachiosaurus. The only humeri of anything in the world that are two meters long are brachiosaur humeri. Uh, Patagotitan, the dang near Argentinosaurus-sized thing from Argentina, its humerus is only about like 1.75 meters long. So, so brachiosaur humeri are in another league entirely. We kind of cleared off the proximal end and confirmed that it was thin front to back. Femora are, are really round. They've got that big round ball to fit into the hip socket. Mm. And humeri are kind of narrow at the top. When we saw that that thing was narrow at the top, it's like, well, it's got to be a humerus. And it's a brachiosaur humerus. And that's exciting, but at the same time that it was exciting, it was also like, oh, man, now we've got this thing is halfway down the slope of this gulch that's out in the middle of nowhere over very rough ground with the nearest road being kind of an unmaintained Jeep trail that's a decent distance away. 
and it didn't look like it was in a very safe place. Like it looked like maybe, you know, a couple of good hard rains and it would be gone. So we thought, hey, this is fantastic. We found this gigantic bone, this amazing find, but it's in a precarious position. It's vulnerable to erosion. We need to get it out. We probably need to get it out this year. Oof. So with the, just the three of you, did you guys take on that endeavor yourselves or did you call in more people? We needed John Foster because we were actually there. We've been collaborating with John on this Morrison project under his uh, permit. Yeah, the, the desert habitat that was found on is like beautiful, untouched, pristine Utah desert. There's rare plants out there. There's cryptobiotic crust growing on the soils. So we couldn't take motor vehicles out to it. And we had to devise a way to get it out that would be both safe and also not damaging to the environment. I would be really surprised if that wasn't the year that it was exposed. Like <laughs> if it wasn't exposed by one of those rains that hit us, like we got rain on the day before. And then like, you know, earlier in the spring and in the winter, it, it rains in Utah. And I, I would be willing to bet that it was exposed that year and it would have been severely damaged if the coming winter had been allowed to rain on it. And then there's a freeze-thaw cycle. And bones are especially vulnerable to that because they're porous. They absorb water. That water freezes inside them, expands and destroys them. Because a lot of people don't realize it. Brachiosaurus is only known, up until this point, it was only known from 10 highly incomplete specimens. And only three humeri, upper arm bones, were known for Brachiosaurus. So this would be the, the fourth, and we ended up, those other chunks Matt found, ended up being parts of the other humerus. So we found the fourth and a fragmentary fifth humerus for Brachiosaurus, which is also the 11th specimen total of Brachiosaurus. <laughs> It really became this very complicated team effort where we assembled a team, kind of all of us had a different sense of what would work and what didn't work, which was kind of cool because John had this, what I thought was a totally crazy idea. He's like, you know, we might be able to get this out with horses. And I kind of think that his daughter, who loves horses, planted that idea in his head. She was actually, she went out there with us and helped us dig up one of these other chunks we found in the gulch near where Matt found that other chunk of bone. And I think Ruby planted this idea that like, you know, horses are like the answer to everything in this <laughs> eight-year-old girl's world. And and I'm like, I'm really nervous because I'm like, oh, John, really? Like, we're going to go on like... We're going to go on the suggestion of your eight-year-old who is, I would dare say, a little bit biased in favor of horses. <laughs> but then again, we know John has a lot of experience with this kind of stuff. He, uh, he used to manage the Museum of Western Colorado Dinosaur Journey Museum where they dig at the Migrant Moor Quarry all the time. And they've pulled some massive, massive Apatosaurus bones out of there. So we're like, all right, dude, well, I... I feel that we need something to put it on that can withstand this desert terrain. So I got a hold of a, a heavy-duty farm wagon, like one of these wagons people haul around like wood and cement and stuff in. Hmm. And I'm like, well, okay, maybe we can uh, use a boat winch or something to like pull this through the rugged parts. And then, you know, Matt Wadle came through with with a good sense of, okay, what are, what are we going to need to really make this jacket strong? Thanks in large part to Matt, we showed up with a bunch of extra plaster, burlap, and wood. I'm pretty sure almost all of which got used. Yeah, we had and, not a lot left over. <laughs> yeah, basically every single 
piece of equipment and person we brought got used to their fullest potential. I also have to shout out my my buddies, uh, Casey Cordes and Mallory Neiman. They showed up. Mallory helped document the whole thing. And Casey is a pretty experienced rock climber and mountaineer and rigged these elaborate uh, rope and nylon webbing systems to help us with the jacket flip and also with like navigating the wagon laden with over a thousand pounds of fossil and plaster. He helped us rig these systems by which we were able to use a boat winch to pull this thing up out of this like amphitheater of rock. <laughs> um, so it was this overall, just a very, like a very multi-step complex abstract yet also very traditional Morrison dinosaur extraction. And we documented the whole thing, which will be, that'll be featured in the third installment of our documentary Jurassic Reimagined. So we got the whole process on tape and we found actually some other interesting discoveries along the way, which will also be incorporated into the, the upcoming installments of the documentary. Awesome. How much did the bone weigh while you were trying to get it out? So the John weighed it on a truck scale when he got it back to Vernal and it, the jacket. So the bone in the jacket, because we left some of the matrix around the bone to protect it. Mm-hmm. That's not like the movies where you clear off the you know <laughs> skeleton right down to the bare bone. You try to leave some rock around there to hold the bone together and protect it and then put the plaster around that. So the jacket in total weighed 1,020 pounds. Oof. And the wagon probably weighed a sh- right around 100, I'm guessing. It was probably a bit heavier when we were moving it because the plaster was freshly cured. So it was still damp. Oh, yeah. So there's probably 50 plus pounds of water soaked into the burlap and plaster that had recently hardened up. Yeah. I was going to say that thing ate so much plaster. So uh, Brian has uh, experience mixing plaster because he uh, molds and casts things uh, as an artist. And as we were mixing plaster out there, you know, in the first few batches, it rapidly became clear that Brian had a better sense for how that plaster was going to mix up. I don't know if it was the dry air or what, but that plaster set faster than any other plaster I've ever seen in my life. And so for a lot of the jacketing process, I think we had like three different buckets and Brian would be mixing plaster in one and we would be putting the burlap in it and putting it on the jacket. And then another one would be drying. And then the third bucket would be dry enough because after you do a batch of plaster, you got to knock out the chunks or those pieces of plaster that are still setting will set off the chemical reaction and the plaster you're trying to mix. So we just had like these three buckets going in rotation. I've never seen anybody mix as much plaster as quickly as Brian did while we were jacketing. <laughs> we, so we were mixing all this plaster, but we also have to, uh, we, we kind of jumped ahead in the story because we got excited about the actual extraction. It, 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 it should be emphasized that a key part of the team that showed up due to John Foster looking for horses is uh, they found this family, a family from Naples, Utah, named the Bartlett's. Wes and Risha are the mom and dad, and they came through with five kids. Four Is kids. Right? Four kids. Four kids. Two giant Clydesdale horses, and they all worked like around the the bone to uncover it and to help us mix plaster and jacket it. And then while we were working on excavating and jacketing the large bone. The kids, so uh, Rebecca Hunt Foster and John Foster's daughter, Ruby, who has been out in the field with us a bunch, and who's actually like a legitimately skilled young paleontologist. How old is, is Ruby 10 now? Uh, I think she turns 10 this year. I think she was nine at the time. <laughs> nine wow. at the time. So this nine-year-old skilled paleontologist. 
was showing the other kids how to jack it because they on their own, just uncovering, dusting through the sediment around the bone, these kids found several other chunks of bone on their own, which they then basically took the initiative of jacketing and flipping and successfully excavating without really any significant adult supervision, which is really awesome. And then, you know, once we got clear of that, it became this complicated technical puzzle of like, all right, how do we get it down? We, we, we can't get it up out of the gulch right away because the wall behind it, it was right by the wall of the gulch and it's really steep and craggy and crumbly and dangerous. It would be too heavy to lift straight out or hoist straight out. So we had to get it down into a gulch, take it a ways down the sandy wash at the bottom of the gulch to this stone amphitheater that was still quite steep and uneven but manageably so. <laughs> and then we had to get it from there up onto this ridge line. And then Clydesdale horses that these people brought, Molly and Darla, the Clydesdale horses, would pull this thing all the way to where we could load it on a trailer. And once we got it on this wagon, though, the Clydesdales would just walk with it. Like <laughs> there was nothing behind them. It was insane. Um, yeah, the Clydesdales were phenomenal. Uh, they were each, I think Wes told me they each weighed 1,800 pounds. And they're tall enough that when I stood right next to them, uh, my eye line was at their shoulder. Like I couldn't, I had to get up on tippy toes to peer over their shoulders. Um, so it was really, really satisfying as someone who works on giant animals and spends a lot of time thinking about giant animals to use a couple of giant animals to pull a piece of another giant animal out of the field. <laughs> That's awesome. But compared to uh, a Clydesdale, a, a Brachiosaurus is kind of on the, another level still. <laughs> a little bit. Seven little bit, levels yeah. later. <laughs> Way other levels. <laughs> so how long did that process of digging it out take? Uh, so let's see. We, um, we all gathered together out there on a Friday. We, Saturday, we got it uncovered and just got it mostly top jacketed. And we, it went slower than we thought. Because it was just, it was so big and it ate so much plaster. So we'd hope to get it. So the way we get a jacket on something in the field is you uncover it, you put on what's called a top jacket, and then you have to sort of dig. You kind of have to put it on a pedestal. You have to sort of make it look like a mushroom in cross section, kind of undercut it and put on more plaster because you want the plaster to grip around it as much as you can. Otherwise, when you go to flip it, if you don't have that grip of plaster around sort of towards the mushroom stem, then the plaster can just come off or the thing can just crumble. Mm. So we had to put on a top jacket and then we had to, uh, to pedestal it and put on more plaster wrapping around the edges and underneath. Uh, John and Rebecca even tunneled under the middle of it and wrapped some plaster around the middle. Then we had to flip it. We thought we'd get to the flip on Saturday. We didn't get to the flip until Sunday. Got the back jacket on. And then I think we started moving it out of the quarry. Sunday afternoon. Maybe something like three in the afternoon. and. We got it out to the Jeep trail at a right around sunset. Like all our pictures then, it's gorgeous sunset light, mm. like lighting up the desert, and it looks phenomenal. And then we had to get it down the road to the trailer. We didn't get it onto the trailer until it was well dark. And we were like pulling up vehicles and turning on headlights to have enough light to see what we were doing. Everything that we could use the horses for went so much faster and so much more smoothly than we thought it would. And everything that we couldn't use the horses for was like, uh, what are we going to do here? Cause we tried to move this thing and it was just, 
it was like it was fixed to the earth. It did not want to budge. <laughs> and they liked pulling things. <laughs> oh, the man, things, did they like pulling things. One of the things um, I got on, on film is the very last stage of this journey. We had, once we got to, we got to kind of a really rugged dirt road before, where we couldn't even get our trailer to. Um, and there's some downhill stretches and we couldn't have the wagon behind the horses on the downhill cause it would roll into them and hurt them. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. they you got to tell them about this, about the thing that Wes calls a sled. Yeah. So they, they've loaded it onto this thing that farm folk call a sled, but it's really not a sled. It's two, uh, six inch steel I beams. So imagine four. I think it was a full okay. four-sided frame <laughs> with two by eights bolted on top. And then the only concession to streamlining is that at the front there was like a four-inch round steel pipe uh, that was horizontal to help it roll over things. So Wes, it weighed five hundred pounds, and Wes would get this thing in and out of the trailer by himself. Oh my god! And the, we, our running joke was, you can call this a sled, but it's only a sled to Clydesdales. To any human, this is a building foundation. Yeah, to any. Yeah, it was like it was like a chunk of a dock. Like imagine building a dock out of steel. <laughs> like you're gonna moor ships to it. But it's you know I don't know five feet by five feet, meter and a half by a meter and a half. Mm-hmm. Just this platform, and it just sits on the gravel and rocks of the dirt road. And then we load onto this 500 pound, not a sled. We load a thousand, probably a thousand fifty pounds of dinosaur bone and plaster and burlap. Plus nearly hundred pounds for the car hood. Oh yeah. We used the car hood to slide it from the, from the wagon onto the sled, the not a sled. Who had an extra car hood laying around? John Foster. Everybody showed up with some. <laughs> Matt showed up with some. Among the random pieces of lumber that Matt just instinctually felt like we needed was a round piece of wood. And Yara, paleontologist Yara Haridi was with us, and she is Egyptian. And she saw us struggling to move this massive chunk of rock. And she's like, hey, you know, you could use that, that wood as a roller. Kind of like you know, Egyptian style. <laughs> so like, oh, that's really smart. And so we did, so we, you know, we, we moved it Pharaoh style, um, rolled it from again on these round pieces of wood onto this, not a sled. And then the horses proceeded to two horses, 1800 pounds a piece strapped, chained with their, you know, halters and all their gear that keeps them safe and comfy while they pull things to this massive load of friction on a really rocky road. And then they said, all right. And Wes and his son, Thane ran behind this thing with the reins of the horses while the horses galloped (laughs) this monstrosity of friction across the dirt road. You could hear, and you'll see this in part three of Jurassic Reimagine. You can hear rocks being ripped apart by the steel beams on the bottom of this non-sled. <laughs> yeah, that road was noticeably smoother after the sled went by because we had to drive back out the next day to, to clean up the quarry, you know, fill in the hole. And we don't want to just leave these ugly holes all over creation. And there were there were rocks on that road that I've been having to steer around that just didn't exist anymore because they've been crushed into powder by the sled. Um, and the, the noise that this thing made... <laughs> was insane it sounds like machine gears grinding forever 
<laughs> like if there was a if there was a robotic demon that chewed up rocks for a living, that's the sound design that you would want. You would want to get some Clydesdales and you'd want a loaded Brachius or Humerus on a sled and record it ripping through a rocky, dusty dirt road in Utah. And and as they were pulling this thing, we had to take breaks. But I think it was in large part because all of us humans running after it were getting out of breath and high altitude. <laughs> and I kid you not, we would stop for a breather. And I was watching, I was running alongside filming. And I'm watching these horses, just massive rib cages with just just completely wrapped in huge latissimus dorsi muscles. Like you could see the massive muscles flexing these rib cages as these horses would breathe. And we would be catching our breath. And before us humans had caught our breath, one or the other of the horses would kind of look backwards. And Wes would catch that. And, well, they're ready to go. The horses <laughs> were like telling us, like, come on, guys, let's do this. this let's get it done. Yeah. And I asked Wes on camera, do they like doing this? They like pulling things? He's like, yeah, they like to pull. <laughs> it was like one of the most like awe-inspiring natural history moments I've ever experienced, like remove the brachiosaurus from like, just load that much rock and see an animal do this thing that I literally thought was a thousand percent impossible. <laughs> and end with the fact that the one bone these horses are pulling had probably a horse's mass of muscle attached to it alone. Yeah. And yeah. I just, yeah, my mind was has been changed forever. I've been deeply, deeply humbled by <laughs> the whole experience, and I'm really excited about finishing this documentary and putting it out in the world, just showing people like this. Uh, this is the planet you live on. It's legit bananas. <laughs> it makes you wonder: Did brachiosaurs like to pull too? Dude, I think I think Matt, they like to push. We talked a lot about them pushing down trees while we were out there. And after seeing what the Clydesdales could do, we thought, yeah, they could probably push over a tree. And they probably did it all the time. <laughs> Just for fun. So then when we were looking at this brachiosaur bone, where one of the one of the things we filmed with Matt is him explaining what the deltopectoral crest is. For those that don't know, the deltopectoral crest is this ridge on pretty much every vertebrate's upper arm bone you have it on your arm bone where your pectoralis muscle so your your uh chest muscle goes in to your shoulder and attaches onto your upper arm bone your humerus while your deltoid muscle basically your outer shoulder bump muscle that wraps around onto the that same front ridge both of those big muscles attach there to pull the arm forward and also to stabilize the arm when you like, you know, do push-ups or walk on all fours like a brachiosaurus does. You have these, <laughs> this, these big muscles attaching into that, that point. The deltopectoral crest on this brachiosaur humerus is one of the better preserved ones of all the brachiosaurus humerus. But ours is in pretty good shape. And we're talking about a muscle ridge that's probably I don't know, five or six inches wide and like foot and a half long, at least, if not two and feet long. Probably, and probably 10 inches tall like if the bone's laying down flat like the, the muscle attachment point rises like a mountain range out of this humerus about i would guess six to ten inches at its tallest point so so yeah. one of the thing matt describes when we first flipped the bone we were really elated because we got 
the deltal pectoral crest was under it where the weight was naturally buried. So when we flipped it, the bump of the deltal pectoral crest was just under the sediment. And so we, ex- we exposed the top of this deltal pectoral crest. Matt got really excited being the anatomist on the crew. He's like, this is the deltal pectoral crest. Mm-hmm. And he explains on camera what that is and why it's kind of significant to our biomechanical understanding of these animals. And the way he describes it in his interp is a muscle approximately the size of a cow. (laughs) And yeah, I just, that visual now, after seeing what these 1800 pound flight scales were capable of doing, that concept just completely forever altered my perception of what biological systems are capable of. That is crazy. Yeah, when like a single part of a dinosaur is larger than me, I start to lose a concept of what that means for <laughs> strength. Yeah, yeah it's a- one of the reasons I like being around the big animals like the Clydesdales is because, you know, if you saw, if you went, you go to a museum, you see the skeleton of a dinosaur that's like the size of a horse. And because dinosaurs get so much bigger, you know, Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus, the sauropods, the horse-sized ones by themselves don't look that impressive. Mm-hmm. But then you actually stand next to a horse and you, you know, run your hand over its shoulder and you feel these muscles. Some of the individual muscles in the horse's arm are bigger than your entire arm or like the size of your thigh. And you're like, wait, this is just an animal the size of a horse. And then <laughs> you start thinking about an animal that's 20 feet tall at the shoulder and has a humerus that's six and a half feet long. I can't help when I'm in museums trying to like visualize what do the muscles look like? What do the blood vessels and nerves look like? Uh, what do the guts look like? And periodically getting to be next to really big living animals is a good way to kind of recalibrate my oh crap meter. <laughs> dinosaurs. Yeah, that's crazy. So you guys hopeful that you might find some other bones? So the jacket that we took out only has the humerus in it, which mm-hmm. they've, now un- they've now prepped out. They've removed all the, that clay stone from around it. And the humerus is now on display at the, the Utah Field House of Natural History. It's a state park museum in Vernal, Utah. So anybody can, they just unveiled the bone yesterday at the museum. So what we want to do is go back and look for more of these clay layers where there might be plants, there might be microfossils, um, there might be dinosaurs that are harder to bury. One of the things we, we wonder about with Brachiosaurus, is it possible that its rarity has to do with the fact that it's just like so massive you can't easily bury it. Hmm. If there's a huge flash flood powerful enough to bury a whole brachiosaur, well, it's probably just going to like rip everything apart and transport it along with logs and stuff, just miles and everything will get ripped apart and torn up and sent out to sea. Yeah. Finding stuff in the softer rock is exciting because we're, we're getting, we're still finding like we even added new big dinosaurs to our tally last summer, not just brachiosaurus. There's a bit that you'll see in one of the upcoming Jurassic reimagined videos where Brian found a beautiful stegosaur plate. And we've got uh, evidence of Camarasaurus, Apatosaurus, Haplocanthosaurus. Um, we've got some interesting uh, bits of theropods. So we're kind of building up the big dinosaur fauna. And now we want to fill in the rest. We want to know about the small dinosaurs. We see essentially no small fossils in those massive sandstones. We only see pretty big stuff, say fist-sized on up to, to log-sized <laughs> And so we're missing a lot of the ecosystem. And if we can start finding these overbank deposits that are in the little bit more gentle setting, 
we can start finding these plants. Hopefully, I'd love to have a microfossil site where we could find like the little mammals and the lizards and turtles and crocs and things like that. Yeah. Um, that'd be phenomenal. Awesome. So you guys keep mentioning Jurassic Reimagined. When is one of these different parts coming out and where are they coming to? So part one just got released uh, about a week ago on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash dinosaurs reimagined. You can also catch some, I guess we could say supplementary material or, or more in-depth scientific material on Matt's blog, SVPAL, uh, Sauropod Vertebrae Picture of the Week. So that's svpow.com. He's been posting about some of the field IDs and how he makes those IDs. And we're currently, we're almost finished with part two. I've got to handle some other commission work. So it may be a few weeks before that comes out, but I'm, uh, I'm aiming for some time late February, maybe early March for part two coming out. And part three, I, it's a little bit harder to say. We're still sorting out some of the script details for part three. And I've made, I've generated a huge amount of art for parts one and two. Part three, I've generated some art for, but there's, I, I'm so excited about the Morrison paleoecology and environment and kind of the changing views of it that my excitement makes me prone to overproducing art. So one of the things that we need to do is, is kind of home in on what are the main things we want to say and figure out you know, where to invest my art making enthusiasm such that the project doesn't take a thousand more centuries to come out. Awesome. And then Matt, do you have anything else coming up that you want to plug? All of the things that I'm working on right now are kind of more or less focused around the Jurassic. Um, I worked in the early Cretaceous for a long time on dinosaurs like Sorposidon and Brontomeris and Aquilops. And Really, in the last years, I've taken a hard pivot into the Jurassic. Um, I've been working with John and others, a specimen of Haplocanthosaurus from Colorado. We described it in 2014, but we've been taking a closer look, and it's due for a redescription. It's got some interesting anatomical features. But I'm also excited about just doing more with the saltwash. Um, so I came to paleontology as a comparative anatomist, and... That's where my training was, and that's where most of my interest has been. And then going into the salt wash and like putting time in on the ground and walking across these exposures, seeing the ripples in the sand preserved in the rock for 150 million years, finding these fossil plants has kind of sparked an interest in me. And so I'm looking to broaden my own horizon scientifically to learn more about the plants, more about the ecosystem, the depositional environments, and help tell this story about even in the Morrison Formation, this vast, famous thing that we think that we know, there's still so much work to be done. There's still so many mysteries to be unraveled, and I'm getting super excited about that. Well, we look forward to seeing what you find out and then seeing it turn to life by Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty great having a super skilled paleo artist for a best friend. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining us and talking about your new discovery. It's really awesome. And I'm really looking forward to seeing these Clydesdales running on the road, <laughs> quote unquote sled. Thanks right for having us. It's been, uh, it's been great to get to tell the story. And just as what we were doing, and I was remembering little snippets that I'd forgotten about. I need to sit down and write sort of like a, I don't know, like a personal history of the dig so I don't lose all these little pieces. Yeah. Good plan. Thanks again, Brian and Matt, for that excellent interview. 
we had a chance to watch Jurassic Reimagined after recording the interview, and we both really enjoyed it. So if you're interested in checking that out, search for Jurassic Reimagined on YouTube, or you can go through their Patreon or through the show notes to the YouTube page and find it that way. We also have an extended version of the interview because every time we talk to Brian, we end up talking for over an hour, and this was no exception. So I think we ended up cutting out almost exactly half of it just to get it under 40 minutes long. So there's a lot more content with Brian and Matt for any of our patrons in the premium content feed, so definitely check that out too. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Juravenator, which was a request from Ricardo via Patreon, so thanks. It was a Silurosaurian theropod that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Bavaria, Germany, and it was a small bipedal carnivore. Only one juvenile specimen has been found, and it's about 29 and a half inches or 75 centimeters long. Oh, little guy. Yeah. Adults may have grown another six inches. Oh, boy. Still little. Yeah. <laughs> the skull is proportionately large. And Juravenator had three-pronged claws and serrated teeth. It didn't have many maxillary teeth. The holotype has eight. It also had a short humerus and a long fenestra in the skull. That's that opening. It may have been nocturnal. That's based on these scleral rings. It also may have eaten insects or small lizards. Juravenator is a rare find, and it's one of the most complete theropods described in Europe. It's the second non-avian theropod found in the region of Solnhofen. And this shows the diversity of predatory dinosaurs in the late Jurassic in southern Germany. A patch of Jurovenator fossilized skin from the tail has scales and traces of what might be simple feathers. Shuxing said that the scales on the tail may mean that there was more variety in feathers of early feathered dinosaurs than in modern birds. He also thought that the scales could be a primitive trait and that Juravenator and other primitive feathered dinosaurs may have had more scales than modern birds. A follow-up study of Juravenator supported Xuxing's thoughts and found faint impressions of possibly primitive feathers were on the top of the tail and the hips. In 2010, a study by Helmut Tischlinger looked at the fossils in ultraviolet light and found more filament-like structures, similar to primitive feathers found on other compsognathids, such as Cynosauroteryx. They also found more patches of soft tissue on the snout and lower leg, and collagen fibers in the tail vertebrae. Juravenator is not completely covered by fluffy feathers, like baby chicks, and that may mean that the feathers appeared on some parts of the dinosaur's bodies before others. The type species is Juravenator starkei, and it was described in 2006 by Ursula Golick and Louis Chiappi. 
The genus name comes from the Jura Mountains where it was found, and Venator means hunter, as we talked about earlier in Garrett's news item. The species name is in honor of the Stark family who owns the quarry where it was found. From 1989 to 1998, the Jura Museum Eichstatt at Eichstatt had a collecting program for a nearby quarry. Two volunteers, the brothers Klaus Dieter and Hans Joachim Weiss, found a slab with vertebrate remains. The team found the head of a small theropod, but it was too difficult to extract the fossils, so they did a CT scan to see if it made sense to dig the rest up. They only saw the neck and part of the lower back and decided not to continue, though the find was reported in 1999. And then in 2001, there was some publicity around the fossil, and it got a nickname, Borstai, which is a name often given to bristle-haired dogs, <laughs> because it was thought to have bristly protofeathers. In 2003, the director of the museum, Martina Colbert-Ebert, decided to finish preparing the fossil. Pino Vogel took 700 hours to prepare the fossil, which had almost the whole articulated skeleton, the end of the tail's missing, as well as soft tissue, so turned out to be a worthwhile excavation. Yeah, so I guess that CT scan couldn't quite see everything that was in there. Yeah, and then the publicity helped. <laughs> So originally, Juravenator was thought to be part of Compsognathidae and a close relative of Compsognathus. In 2012, Akim Reisdorf and Michael Luque described the taphonomy of Juravenator, and they think that the specimen may have floated for a short time and then sunk to the bottom of the basin after it died. It was found in a strange rotated position. The way the pelvis is rotated with aspect to the torso was odd. So there was probably some predation or scavenging of the carcass, but it still doesn't explain the weird rotation. Not too much scavenging because still have a pretty good... Right, all but the end of the tail. Yeah. <laughs> Enough to just move it around in weird ways. Just fish nipping at the end of the tail. <laughs> Enough to turn it, yeah. And our fun fact comes courtesy of Matt Wadel. It's a list of the longest sauropod humori... And according to him, therefore, the longest humeri of anything found to date. So up first, number one, the longest ever humerus, is from a Brachiosaurus. This one's from Potter Creek in Colorado, and it's 213 centimeters. They're just barely short of seven feet long. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty massive. It's also tied with a giraffe titan, the SII specimen, in Tanzania, which is also 213 centimeters. Kind of makes sense because Brachiosaurus and Giraffatitan are famous for that giraffe-like posture with the longer front limbs, so it makes sense that they would have the longest humeri, which is their front leg, the top part of it, since they don't really have arms. Then in third place, or one and a half place, I don't know where to put it, is Brachiosaurus, but this one's the holotype from Colorado. It's probably 213 centimeters also, but only 203 centimeters is preserved. It's kind of missing the end. So yeah, not quite as big, but still very large. Up next is Giraffatitan, <laughs> just kind of alternating Giraffatitan Brachiosaurus, the XV3 specimen from Tanzania. That one's 210 centimeters or six foot 11. And then the new Utah Brachiosaurus, which we talked about with Matt and Brian, which is 201 centimeters or six foot seven inches. It's the next longest. Number six is the Ruyangasaurus, which is a Titanosaur, the first Titanosaur, and the first one that doesn't quite eclipse the two meter mark. This one's from China. It's probably about 190 centimeters in total, which would make it six foot three, same height as me. 
<laughs> but only 135 centimeters of it is, is preserved. So you know, there's a significant portion of it missing. But yeah, that means there were some really large titanosaurs going on in China, especially in the front legs. Yeah. The next longest, number seven, comes from Turiosaurus, which is an earlier sauropod from Spain. This one's 179 centimeters long, or five foot 10 inches. Then there's Nodocolossus, the famous titanosaur from Argentina, which is 176 centimeters, or five foot nine. Then we get our first African titanosaur. This one, Paralatitan from Egypt, is 169 centimeters, five foot seven. Patagotitan, which you may have seen at AMNH because it's on display there. It's pretty awesome. That one is just 167 and a half centimeters or five foot six inches. Wow, I wouldn't have guessed that was on the lower end of this list. Yeah. I mean, it is partly the posture because that one's more of a typical titanosaur sort of horizontal posture. It doesn't have that upright front leg move going on. So I'm sure that's a big part of it. Then there's Dreadnoughtus. The titanosaur from Argentina coming in at a measly 160 centimeters or five foot three inches. <laughs> measly. <laughs> Just like Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't describe myself as measly, thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe in the height category. <laughs> and then uh, the last one rounding up the top dozen is Futalongosaurus, the titanosaur from Argentina, which we were just talking about the other day. And that one comes in at 156 centimeters or five foot one inches. Does that one count as measly? No, these are all very <laughs> large. Good for them. <laughs> That's a good point because apparently the average human humerus, it's kind of hard to say, is about 30 centimeters or one foot. And a long humerus would be about a foot and two inches or 35 centimeters. So compared to us, yes, these are all incredibly massive. Mm -hmm. Plus that doesn't include the circumference of these things several feet around, whereas our humerus is probably like, what, three inches, four inches? Yeah. <laughs> This is why sauropods are so great. They're pretty cool. Not as good as ankylosaurs, though. Needs to be known. No, they're better. They're bigger. Are you saying bigger <laughs> things are better? Uh, in this particular instance, <laughs> with dinosaurs, yes. I see. I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> For dinosaurs. Don't cut off my quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put an ellipsis. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes and join our growing community at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.